morning, church. Let's continue to worship our Lord. Thank you, Ari, uh, Elder Ari, for leading us in the time of worship. Would you please turn your Bible with me to uh, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Today's text is taken from verse 1 to 12. Verse 1 to 12. For you at home, um, I know for some reasons you have to be at home right now. And thank you for worshipping with us. Please turn your Bible as well to James chapter 4. Verse 1 to 12. Very good. I can see all the children opening your Bibles. And let's... Let's dwell in the Lord's Word. James chapter 4, verse 1. I read. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. Your desire, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend in on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is amity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But... Who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord that's come to him in prayer that he may impress upon us his word this day. Let's pray. O oh God, who is just, and who is merciful, who gives more grace. O oh Lord, do humble us this day, that we may hear your word and be taught by your word. O oh God, we know that we have much to learn as well as to do. So Lord, help us to submit to you and let the Holy Spirit indeed speak to us. Let not this be another session of formality. Let this not be a gathering of just uh, routine. But Lord, 
let it be afresh and new. Your word, refreshing and reviving us from within. So Lord, speak to us. May you transform us. May you help us all together to to abide in love and to abide in your commandments. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So generally speaking, we recognize that having friends or friendship in our lives are a good thing. And just ask a child who uh, attends the nursery right now or kindergarten, right? Uh, a few of you or some of you have gone through that phase. They can very quickly recite the names of the, their friends, right? And even recite the names who are not their friends. And for some of us, having friends or friendship is a most if not the most important thing in the world. But what makes a friend that we would need so much of? Now, from the Oxford Dictionary, a friend is a person with whom one has a bond of mutual affection. I read again, a friend is a person with whom one has a bond of mutual affection. In other words, a friend is a person whom or who we like and are somehow are joined together, either a purpose, a cause, or something, all right? For that reason, when someone is a friend, the friend stick together, often fusing and and influencing one another to some degree. Now, one day when I picked up one of my kids from school, she started talking passionately about Autobots and Decepticons of the Transformers. Just out of the blue. She had not watched it before. So I asked her, why all of a sudden she becomes so aware, even passionate about talking, uh, uh, talking about it? The answer came, my friend, so-and-so, in school loves the toys and movies of the Transformers. And he talked to me almost every day, all the time about it. For that moment, as a parent, I'm sure most of you are, and even teachers of Sunday school, I have been reminded again that who my child becomes friends with is very important. In fact, she reminded me who my friends are, which is essential. And I'm in contact with two of my childhood friends, but only one, one of them, I continue to have a close relationship or friendship. And not too long ago, as the two of us reflected how our friendship for nearly 40 years, we recognized we had many things in common, but we also have differences and quarrels. There was a point in time when we thought our friendship would just end. Then came a new friend into both our lives who helped us understand, to reflect, to reject strife, and to resolve our quarrels. So in our text today, James would help us to reflect our friendship with one another and with God. 
Friends, for those of you who are seeking to know the kind of friendship God offers, stay tuned all the way to the end. You will get a whole picture of uh, the kind of friendship that God offers when this sermon is done. Now, to help guide us through the sermon, here is the big picture and the big idea of this sermon. We must reject strife from friendship with the world and humbly submit to God's offer of friendship. And the outline is simply two only, all right? Firstly, reject the friendship with the world. And secondly, reject, or rather, resolve the friendship with God. Okay, so reject the friendship with the world. And secondly, resolve the friendship with God. Also, resolve as in settle and decide firmly on a course of action when God offers his friendship is something that Elder Ari just now leading the worship kind of encourage us to have a cause of action, right? Even as we hear the word. Now in our text, James urges the believers of the first church, mainly Jewish people, to reject friendship with the world. He urges them to reject, first reject strife in verses 1 to 5 and then to reject slander in verses 11 to 12. But you know what? That must have puzzled the Jewish people, the believers. You see, the Jews supposed that they were special. They thought they had already rejected the world and supposedly separated from, from it by their customs and traditions. Now, the Jews who became the believers of Jesus Christ, suppose they would be even more exclusive from their community and the world. However, this is when James submits his first evidence in verse 1, that they would be no different from the world. He asks with a soul-searching question in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, what is the fighting really about? What is the fighting really about? Then James implied the answer with another question. He asked, is, this, is, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, the expression at war within you can be translated as uh, mem uh, at war with within your members, all right? Could members as in members of the body, uh, means within internally you are kind of hand fighting with leg, leg fighting with hand, that kind of internal war. It could be that, which is an internal strife within a person, or it can be an external conflict between the fights of fellow believers, or even both means there's a fight within first and then there's a fight outside there, all right? So in other words, there were fights within their community because they fought for their wrongful passions or sinful desires to be satisfied. Now, one Greek Bible scholar put it this way. The word for passion in Greek is the source for the English word hedonism, right? Hedonis or hedonism, right? 
But in James' day, it simply implied an intense, very intense pleasure or even enjoyment or appetites, much like some of us would enjoy our chicken rice or lassilomat or something of this sort. But imagine the intensity, okay? like smell of the aroma of such and then to the extreme pleasure of it. But more than that, okay, it's like you are really taking everything in, right? Every single grain and everything and just go to extreme. Though it would have simply meant that more and more it was coming to have connotations of lust, especially involving improper sexual desires. So the Greek scholar is saying, that yes, James Day, right, it will imply intense pleasure, enjoyment in appetites, though more and more it was coming to an connotations of lust, especially involving improper sexual desires. In other words, the word passions seems to point to the first secondary sin since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis. Now, the primary sin of all men, the original scene of both man and woman is rebellion against God. They disobey God's commandments not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then comes the secondary scene that flows out of the primary. So from the beginning of the pages of Genesis, generally, one could deduce that the first secondary scene for man is the last, right? The last or the passion for satisfying sexual desires. And then for women, the first secondary sin is the last for control out of their insecurity. And for this reason, James, like an Old Testament prophet, bring four charges against the strife of the believers for violating the commandments of God, specifically the Ten Commandments. In verse 2, the first charge, you murderer with hatred because you desire and do not have. The second charge, you fight and quarrel because you covet, being greedy, envious, that you cannot have. Now, covetousness and greed violates the Ten Commandments. In verse 3, the third charge, you pray for getting things only to satisfy for your own desires and you don't get it. That's the use of God's name in vain that violates the third commandment. And finally, concluding his charge in verse 4, you adulterous people, it's including myself, all right? Here is an echo from the pages of the prophet Hosea. God uses Hosea's wife's adulterous affair with other men as a picture of Israel's adulterous experience with idols in their hearts. In that case, you adulterous people violates the first commandment. Thou shalt not have other gods before me, or thou shalt have no other gods before me. So in essence, from verse 1 to 4, James is exerting that once any of the commandments is compromised and broken, ultimately, 
the problem of friendship with the world is idolatry. Giving our hearts to another person or thing rather than God. If that is the case, here is the bad news. We are setting ourselves up with a far bigger and more serious problem. We become enemies of God. The Jew became God's enemies rather than their friend when they misplaced their aim of worship. And the Jew, like us, we misplace our aim of worship so easily. Our heart naturally aims at other things for our worship, intentionally or unintentionally. Most, if not all of us, I will begin our worship first thing in the morning. When we wake up, our hearts bow down, lowering our heads and our chins, our eyes fixed to our worship. And what would that be? Would it be our smartphones that we bow down, our eyes fixed? Or would it be the God of the Bible? And here is the good news for all of us. James presses in the, to the Jews to make his point in verse 5 that God is a jealous one. He is a jealous one fighting for their hearts and spirits. God longs to dwell among His people and us. And His strong presence manifests Himself on Sabbath, on the Sunday, in the church. God fights for our attention in the institution of the church to act on the fifth commandment, the Sabbath day of rest. To rest indeed in the good news of Jesus Christ. Or do our smartphones, our work, our studies, our Netflix or TV shows or newsroom give us the good news of Jesus and rest? To be sure, I'm not saying that all of us now throw away our smartphones. I have some thoughts right now, but I will not go there. I'm just, to be sure, I'm not saying throw away all our smartphones. What I'm saying is, will we check our worship on Sabbath? We will check our worship on Sabbath. Our hearts bowing down as our eyes fixed on Christ Jesus and His good news for us today. Back to the text. Wouldn't we respond to God today to reject the devil and so resist any strife or slander among our communities? For those of you seeking the faith, it is the same. Would you reject the devil and so resist any strife or slander? From verses 1 to 4, James urges the Jews and us to reject strife uh, as steaming, all right, as coming out from friendship with the world. Now, strife is angry or anger. 
or bitter disagreement over issues. Strife is a conflict that arises from worldly wisdom, as mentioned in the verses in the last verses of James chapter 3 in the previous sermon. And strife will lead to hurting others. And one particularly insidious, all right, evil manifestation and a result of strife is slander. Slandering is making false judgments and damaging statements about someone. Now, to be sure, James is not saying don't make any judgment calls, right? Because he just did exactly that. But don't make false judgment, which is slandering. For this reason, James urges us to reject slander in verses 11 and 12. Slandering fellow believers slander God's law, which prohibits such action. Slandering uh, observes, supplant, and forcefully take over God's role as the only perfect judge by placing believers in a position of judging God's law instead of obeying it. So, you might ask, how does that practically work out in our lives? How do we judge God's law? We judge God's law when we point our finger at other people instead of ourselves. Alright? You use God's law, right, to judge other people instead of using it to judge to yourself first. To be sure, James is not saying, hush, hush them, be very private, huh? don't talk about uh, anything uh, that you have done wrong or covering up the sins in our lives or others. It's not about that. On the contrary, James is precisely speaking up here against the sin of his people and the church. We are to be vigilant, bring to light the issues, expose the sins and darkness in our lives and especially in the community of believers that we should destroy we should reject the devil's scheme of destroying our lives and our church as said in Ephesians chapter 5 is your friendship in the virtual world in your games producing quarrels with your family is your friendship with ungodly people at school, at work, or even church attendees, whether here, on present, or online. Is your friendship with ungodly people tearing apart your relationships in your family or in the church? We'll do well to remember that the devil also know how to cope scriptures too when tempting Jesus at the wilderness. The devil offered Jesus the world and its friendship. But Jesus rebuked and rejected the friendship with the world. For this reason, verse 7 tells us to resist the devil, resist his offer of friendship with the world. And God promised that the devil will flee from you and I, the church, as we submit to the light of Christ. So may I urge all of us to step out of the darkness, be willing to take sins at task, either ours 
or painfully others. Reject your friendship with the world and be the light. Resolve your friendship with God. Again, resolve as in settle and decide firmly on a course of action. And in verses 6 to 10, then James tells the Jew, and so speak to all of us as well, to resolve the friendship with God. Now verse 6 is the good news to all of us of wanting to break away, break free from the friendship of the world and resist the devil. God tells us that He gives more grace. He says He gives more grace to us as He did with the Jews. James is recalling what God has done with the Jews. God gives more grace. The evidence is when we see God's grace restoring the people of Israel after exposing their sins with His admonishment and chastisement. You can see this, this, observe this, especially in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentation of the Old Testament. Now, in the last pages of Jeremiah, in the last pages of Lamentation, both shows God's grace. But even more so, even more so, God showed more grace by writing half of the pages, half of the book of Jeremiah, of his warning, his verbal warning, pursuing his people over and over again through the words of Jeremiah. Yet, Israel continues to pursue friendship with the world. They think everything is good, you know, why worry? The Babylonians are not going to come after us. They can fight all the way. And by the way, as as much as they can fight, they are waning off. They can't hurt us. We are having a good time. Our good time will last forever. And so Israel continues to sin, pursue the friendship with the world. It is the grace of God that He stopped them at their track to destruction and redeem those whom he will choose. God is always the one offering the friendship to the Jews and to us. Now the question for all of us is then how would we respond to God? What is our resolve to decide firmly on a course of action in our life? Verses 6 and 7 urges the Jews and all of us to resolve to humbly submit to God in response to His friendship. And verse 10 says that when we do that, God promises to lift us up from our mud and even sometimes blood pool of sin. What does friendship with God look like, you might ask then. From verses 7 and 8, it looks like one who is resisting, who is pushing back the influence of the devil and the world. And at the same time, it looks like drawing near to God. And that reminded me of a picture of a soldier dashing, right? He was, he's dashing towards a helicopter landing pickup point when enemies are right behind him. So he's pushing back the enemy with 
fire and all that. He's gunfire pointing at them. At the same time, he's running and drawing near to the helicopter pickup point. His eyes are fixed in the direction of the landing zone and just dash. As fast as his running legs could carry him, he ran, he ran, and his hands are pushing away the trees, the, 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 I mean not the trees, the tall grasses, the bushes, and the thorns that are stopping him. At the same time, again, trying to fire back the enemies. As they draw near to the landing zone, then he hears the sound of the helicopter drawing near. More and more. And all the more as you hear the helicopters coming, you know, towards him at the landing zone, and with all his strength, he starts going and dash towards the ages. Though his hands, his face, are cut by the ages of the grass and pierced and ripped by thorns of the bushes. The chopper made on the landing zone. And the soldier don't stop. The soldier don't stop until he made it into the helicopter. And tears of joy. Tears of joy. Though in real life, I think as Singaporeans, even the guys in the army don't experience this. I mean, enemies are not at the back firing. But some of us would have experienced this running towards the helicopter with tears of joy after days out there in the exercise. Yeah, we actually sustained real cuts because of the lalang bush grass and you know, thorns and all that. But it was tears of joy when we reached into the helicopter. Yeah, actually the, no, our so-called supposedly enemies are, are the commanders like, coming from our back. But verse 9 paints another of friendship with God, another picture of friendship with God. It looks like one who is, who weep, who is weeping, mourning, taking time to cry for one's sin. We will do well to tell the difference between worldly crying and godly crying. Both are crying for one's sins. But worldly tears cry feeling sorry for being caught in the wrong while godly tears are shed feeling sorry sinning against God in other words worldly crying is selfish remorse running away from God and His church while godly crying is turning to God first and his church to ask for forgiveness. In this picture, we resolve friendship with God, crying for his forgiveness. So what does friendship look like between, say, a person, a real-life person, and God? James reminded us that Abraham was called a friend of God in James chapter 2, verse 23. Because in Isaiah chapter 4, 41, and then somewhere in 2 Chronicles, God declares, But you, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you, descendants of 
Abraham, my friend. God declares himself that Abraham is his friend. From these verses, friendship with God is based on God's covenant, His promise. And the wonderful thing is that God is the initiator for friendship, of His friendship. God is a friend who brings good news to Abraham first. He made promises that the good news will come true. God promised Abraham that he will have what? He will have descendants, he will have land, and he will have a nation after him. And that comes from the covenant with him in Genesis chapter 17. And God then fulfilled them all. As we read the Bible, progresses from one, play, uh, one time to the other. So from the friendship of God and Abraham based on God's promises, we see that God is a friend who is never tired of giving good things. God is a faithful friend. God is an ever-present friend. God is a friend who brings good news and God makes promises. And God is a friend who fulfills His promises. And this is God initiating friendship with us. That is exactly what I have chosen you, the descendants of Abraham, is all about. James was imp- or is implying here that God is offering his friendship to the Jews, to you and I. However, again, the Jews will be very puzzled how the perfect and just God can offer sinners sin- friendship. There has been a long, long, long puzzle for a long time. In that case, for the Jews, friendship, uh, God's friendship simply means not being an enemy of God. So for them, friendship means, you know, as long as I'm not an enemy of God, I'm good. So they, are mistake, they, they, are, they have mistaken God as an angry or easily angered friend. So they will always try to present the best behavior in front of God and others. But today, we have mistaken God as an easygoing friend. He's like a BFF. You all still use that, by the way? You all still use that? No? I don't know. He's like a BFF or a buddy-buddy huh? uh, that is always agreeable, always giving in to our desires. Okay lah, okay lah, you know? Even okay to the simple ones. Both are worldly ideas of human friendship imposed on God. Now think of all the disappointments and sadness in human and worldly friendships. Just for a moment, just think about it. I know for the younger children, right, you might not have experienced, except that you know the names of the friends that you don't really like, right? <laughs> yeah, those are disappointments, isn't it? But think about it, the disappointments, the sadness in human and worldly friendships. Those are not God's friendship. The good news is this for all of us is that God's friendship isn't like any human friendships. He don't disappoint. The revelation comes with God's good news to, the, to first the Jews, then you and I, 
in the Gospel of John chapter 15. Verse 13 to 15. Chapter 15, John chapter 15, verse 13 to 15. And this is Christ's declaration for all of us. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. If, if you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, double emphasis here, Jesus said again, I have called you friends. Based on what? Based on the covenant with Abraham, his descendant, his physical children, his spiritual children, all of us who believe. I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Now God's friendship is in Christ Jesus. His friendship is the ultimate expression of love. Lay down his life and die for his friend. His friendship is obedience and doing what he commands in the Bible to kill sin. His friendship is freeing us from the slavery of sins. So that's why he say you are no longer slaves. His friendship is helping us to know God the Father on earth so that we can recognize God when we see Him in the heavens. God offers a friendship to us is His Son, Christ Jesus. Who is my friend? Now, in the beginning of the sermon, I've shared that I have been in contact with two childhood friends for nearly 40 years. I prayed for both of them and shared the gospel with them when I was as early as my JC days or even before that. And eventually, both went to churches. Both went to churches. But, sadly, on one hand and joyfully on the other, only one of them remains my friend because we share a common new friend he is Christ Jesus Christ is our most trustworthy friend of love help rebuke and redeemer and willing to obey his commands so that we are called his friend and that's why just now elder Harry at the beginning urges us to obey his commands repent and obey his commands that we may be called jesus friends now when i met up with my friend right after that is my childhood friend huh? after i met up with my childhood friend uh after i came back from the usa like some wow almost uh, two years ago, uh, when I met up with him, 
I impishly kind of declared, all right? I impishly declared, hey, your best friend is back. And he looked at me. He paused, looked down, and then looked to me again. Then say along this line, who is my friend? Not you, my dear brother. Jesus is. And both of us laughed and agreed. Now, who is your friend? Would you reject strife from friendship with the world and humbly submit to God's offer of friendship? So today, you may carry this question with you. Who is my friend? This is the preach word of God.